Welcome to MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the truth behind medical research with unbiased, evidence-proven facts, powered by Encore Research Group and hosted by cardiologist and top medical researcher, Dr. Michael Corrin. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Corrin. And I'm uh, Dr. Gary Kate. And Dr. Kate is joining me in a really fascinating discussion about orthopedics and how people in the orthopedic world look at clinical research and some of the stuff that you personally do, uh, have been part of. And uh, you showed me this, this fabulous picture of what you proposed my hand should look like <laughs> rather than what it looks like now. And I'm a little skeptical, I must say that, but there's actually a rationale behind this versus the other model that you're possibly proposing. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what you're doing and why you showed me this hand model. Be happy to. Thank you. So <laughs> this is called a hand immobilizer. I uh, do quite a bit of hand surgery. And um, when a patient is um, has their hand on the hand surgery table, often they're under anesthesia and, and the hand is not controlled and the fingers curl up. And often the point is to operate on the palm and the digits. And with the fingers curled up, it has it's harder to get access. And instead of somebody holding those fingers down for you all the time, this is a device that um, can be used to curl to, to hold the digits oh, okay. and, um, it can hold mm -hmm. it in position so you can get to the palm. But as you can see, it covers the fingers fairly well and the tips of the fingers, making it hard to access the whole digit. And this is something that I had recognized and thought, um, I could improve upon. So I approached the company that uh, makes this hand immobilizer and together we did approve, uh, improve upon it. And, uh, now we have a new product that's uh, come to the market, uh, this year. And is that the new product here? Yeah. Okay. So this once is, you show that, show it to the camera. So show a sample that versus the old um, ones. It's very similar, <clears throat> but you can see that the digits are split. And in that way, it's easier to secure the end because sometimes the end of the, the digit would slip out. And plus, you can get access to different portions of the digit. So now if you just want to secure the end, this is a more secure way. But for instance, you could also bring this down here and have access to the end. You can even use this to, to just grab the, the bases of the digits. Mm -hmm. So in that way, it gives more flexibility <clears throat> and more access and taking a, s a relatively simple concept with an aluminum hand and making the aluminum hand plus just to improve upon things, which we're always trying to do in um, orthopedics, hand surgery, and medicine in general. I see, interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well that, <clears throat> that's a great explanation and thank you for that because when you first brought it in, I thought you were going to recommend that you were going to increase the number of fingers on my hands. No, I think <clears> you have five to twelve. I think you have just the right number. <laughs> In fact, we were talking about maybe five is too many fingers. That's right. That's right. So, um, a lot of times, and uh, I had one mentor who always stressed uh, when people had injuries of the index finger not to fret too much mm -hmm. because uh, cartoon characters often it's it they have four digits they have four digits. And like Mickey Mouse, and he said, look at Mickey Mouse, he does great, and he doesn't have that index right. finger. Yeah, yeah, and I've read that cartoon characters only have three or two fingers so that it saves time in the animation. Is that yeah. what it is? Yeah. Well, I, I just thought it, it, it generally looks too busy. Yeah. It looks like there's <laughs> too many. That's true also, yeah. yeah. That's probably yeah. part of it as yeah. well. Interesting. Yeah. So we talked in the previous session a little bit, and I'll just very briefly repeat it, that there are different levels of complexity of devices that we 
we do innovations on, and this would be considered a level one device. Correct. Yeah. Meaning that it's similar to what's already in the market. So there's there's not much you need to do in terms of FDA clearance. In fact, you just submit a 510K exemption, and then you're allowed to market it. But as you get more and more complex, you may get to the point where you actually have to run a clinical trial and get pre-market approval from the FDA. So uh, you were mentioning about whether or not you need informed consent if you are using those different types of hand immobilizers in the operating room. So why don't you educate us about that? So every patient who's having surgery needs to uh, give consent. And it's uh, our obligation. It's also just good practice to make sure the patient understands as much as they're able to about the procedure. And in general, you know, the procedures are are standard enough where they could be explained and the patient can understand it. Now, there are sometimes there are certain problems where you might use a device that's not been used before mm -hmm. or what we call is off-label, not be used <laughs> for that product. There might be a certain fracture that the current implants just won't fit very well. And you might use an implant, for instance, that's normally used in the ankle mm -hmm. and use it in the mm -hmm. forearm. Mm -hmm. And that's called, in that case, yeah, that needs to require ex extra explanation, get the patient's permission for that mm -hmm. and uh, to move, in order to move forward. Can you always anticipate that? Or do you do something in the consent process that's broad-based so you can cover those circumstances? Well, sometimes you can see something and, and, uh, and pretty much be aware of that. But in the consent form, it does give some leeway that the patient knows when you're doing the surgery and they're not able to be informed further that they give you the permission to do what's in their best interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now I'm sure you deal with people that have very different expectations in terms of what mm -hmm. you'll be doing. Uh, personality wise, I'm sure there's some people that want you to freelance and do whatever you can to get the best results. And others might say, just do ex the minimum that you have to do. So talk to us a little bit about, about that personality type and how that affects the way you approach things, particularly if it's something that's innovative. Right. Talking, speaking in generalities, I want to do the minimum to get the job done, to get the best job done. And I'll explain that to the patient. Um, and there's sometimes when, uh, if you're doing a, certain type of shoulder repair, you just have to be frank and say, I'm not sure, you know, exactly what we're going to encounter and how we're going to do it. And if it's going to be, you know, if it's going to be able to be completed and I'll, and I'll explain that to the patient as well. What we need to often um, pin down with the patient is expectations mm -hmm. because, because you don't want that to be out of line with what the outcome is going to be. Mm -hmm. And that's often we have to, to, to let them know, yes, you're going to be better. And I sometimes use a baseball analogy. I think, I think that this is going to be, you know, a, analogous to a double, <laughs> maybe a triple, but it's not going to be a home run. Mm -hmm. It's not going to, you know, this wrist now is not going to be the wrist you was, it was when you were born. Mm -hmm. You're going to have less pain. You're going to be able to play tennis, but it's not going to be just like, so I think expectations is often mm -hmm. what uh, we spend a lot of time, um, having the patient understand. Right. Yeah. And I know that you deal with a lot of high profile patients, such as professional athletes mm -hmm. who probably have extraordinarily high expectations of the procedure and a lot of, a lot at stake in terms of what the outcome is. So tell us a little bit how you handle those type of folks. Right. So when you're dealing with a uh, professional athlete, especially a local professional and football player is a local professional the first thing that um, 
in Europe and in, in the in the docs approach is and you let and you let the patient know that most of, often is I'm not a fan. I'm your doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not uh, you're not uh, here because because you want the uh, team to get the super to the Super Bowl. That would be great. Mm-hmm. But your our, our obligation, of course, is to the patient. Sure. And number one, I'm not a fan. I'm your doctor, <clears throat> and and uh, and that's my only interest. And 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 then you t- talk to the patient. Is I'm interested in what this is going to do to you a day from now, a week from now, a year from now, and ten years from now. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, when you're done with your career, how's it going to be affect you a decade from sure. now? Not just getting you back, you know, to the next game or right. so. And 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 we go through that. Mm-hmm. What are you going to be like? To, so tomorrow, if we do the procedure, you're not playing tomorrow. Right. You know, uh, you know, as opposed to maybe you could play and then deal something at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. And how does that affect you? Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, and and we go through that. And and in the end, we want them to return to play at their highest level of performance with minimal risk and, um, and, and not having any diminution of the outcome mm-hmm. over the long term, and, Sure. And, and that's kind of what's stressful. It's got to be a lot of pressure. So you're dealing with a baseball pitcher or a quarterback and you're doing a surgery on their hand or a finger and um, they don't perform well. Is there pressure on you? Do, does all, the whole city hate you because you did a poor job of getting them back to their previous state? Right. Do you ever think about that? <laughs> it, well, yeah, it, uh, it is a higher pressure environment. Yeah. It's something that, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, going to surgery. It's something that I think a lot of surgeons enjoy mm-hmm. and, um, and trying to get people to that highest level of performance. It's something that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think without, kind of um, enjoying the pressure. I don't think you really go into surgery just to, uh, for most of us. I see. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, yeah. so you are the quarterback, you go in and you revel in the pressure. Yeah, maybe so. And, maybe um, so. and, you, yeah. and you don't care what the fans reactions will be uh, if the outcome on the field isn't right. as good as the outcome in the operating room. I, 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 well, we want it all. We want it to be excellent in the operating room, excellent in the field. We try and get it all. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> How about in terms of dealing with publicity? That mm. must be another element of uh, treating high-profile patients in general, particularly professional athletes. Well, here, you know, and uh, I mean, it's all it's HIPAA, mm-hmm. so we never discuss anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't um, let any. Um, we don't kind of disclose any information to anyone. So generally, it's not something that um, people even know about. Um, there's patients I've treated, you know, this year, this month, nobody knows about it. And, um, and of course, I don't disclose anything. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just a private matter between the, the patient and I. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever get pressure from coaches or owners or other people in terms of your decision making? So... Uh, one thing with uh, treating a professional athlete that's different is you're treating more than the athlete. So if you're treating a child, of course, it's the child and, and the parents. Mm-hmm. If you're treating a, uh, an athlete, it's often the athlete, the family, the, tra- uh, the trainer, mm-hmm. uh, the head team doc, the agent, mm-hmm. the coach. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's kind of a lot of uh, different interests. Um but for the most part, you know, like I stress to the player, it's, you know, I work for you mm-hmm. and, um, and let's figure out what's the best thing for you. Yeah. Yeah. It, can be, it can be hard. 
Yeah. We we had a situation during COVID where the NBA became very interested in the work we were doing with COVID-19 vaccines. Mm. And I had a n- number of discussions with executives in the NBA, and they you know, broadly wanted to be supportive of the research. And um, obviously, we're leery about the concepts of clinical trials, where we are just the independent testing agent, and we're interested in objective parameters for seeing whether or not things worked or didn't work. So, for example, um, if we mentioned something about would um, vaccinated versus non-vaccinated players have any difference in their performance mm-hmm. and whether or not that's something they wanted to look at. And they were very leery about it, honestly. And I, and I understand why. I, it, that, that was their sensibility. But I can imagine that some of those elements of what we do that we consider objective may be a little bit different in the sports world. Well, I I would love to have seen that study, mm-hmm. you know, to, to have that study done, to see how many, you know, to, to have those patients and you know what kind of performance they do per, you know, by the minutes, by their points per game, and then see what happens after the vaccine. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah, to, and, uh, and, and that's yeah. my internal medicine thinking was in the same direction. But yeah. unfortunately, uh, the, the association wasn't really interested in that because of the implications to the athletes and their contracts and other things of that nature. They did have a lot of data, a lot of health data, and they were willing to share that in a de-identified way. Uh-huh. And uh, all, of course, all of this could have been done in a de-identified way, but they were concerned that that mm-hmm. um, that confidentiality could break down at some point, and mm-hmm. that would have perhaps negative implications. Mm-hmm. So it's a you know it's a tricky area. Yeah, trickier. Yeah, but it, again, it I is, yeah. make it clear that they they were very broadly supportive of the research work that we were doing. Essentially, yeah, I would. Uh, that's something I'd uh, you know love to be involved with. For instance, I mean, there's some data on forearm fractures, but you you mentioned we, in orthopedics, we need to work a little harder on collecting data. Mm-hmm. But forearm fractures in professional football players, in general, once you have one, your career is a year shorter. Mm-hmm. But uh, like, but it's hard to go back and figure what you know what specifically caused it when the outcomes are generally very good. Why is that? What leads to that shortening of the career? Right. Of course, that's not something we want for our right for our patients. Yeah, and sometimes the the process of looking at things objectively may seem a little bit awkward to people. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, for example, if you ask for certain types of testing to be done to a professional athlete, strictly to look at a medical issue, they might look at a, a scans at you. Mm-hmm. And um, to my knowledge, it's really hard to do those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even for performance drugs that we talk a lot about, it's done purely on an anecdotal basis, and the complications of it are done in an anecdotal basis. But you know, one argument could be that, okay, well, why don't we look at safe performance-enhancing drugs? Mm-hmm. Why don't we actually take these things and do them in clinical trials, see if they make a difference, and see if there are any downside risks? And that gets into a very different point of view with regard to sports and how science and sports can, can make a difference. Because you know, training um, methods are certainly looked at in terms of, of of helping athletes do better. But if we asked about a drug, for example, that would help you hit a baseball better, uh, all of a sudden we're talking about cheating. Yes. And yeah. uh, so it's a very different mentality than other ways of improving performance. Yeah. Just mentioning performance-enhancing drugs, that is something that is a question we'll often ask. Mm-hmm. Because if something like steroids is used... That generally can um, 
can negatively impact the outcome, mm -hmm. especially if it's a soft tissue injury. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is something that uh, we know can adversely affect the athlete yeah. after injury. Yeah, so uh, yeah. I, I remember when I was um, taking testing for medical school, I read an article that uh, different foods prior to testing were looked at in terms of whether or not they improved your test scores. Uh -huh. And the only thing that was proven to work was albumin, according to this result. Uh -huh. And I always wondered why we didn't do more of that. Uh -huh. um, you know, maybe just a pure protein um, substance that you ingest would help your concentration compared to something that was high in carbohydrates. Uh, was chicken soup tested? <laughs> well, good question. <laughs> but, but why not? Uh -huh. right, why not? Why, why don't we do randomized studies? And again, we could de-identify things and you know look at people taking the SATs, for example. Take a thousand people and give them one diet, and another thousand randomized to another diet, and see if it makes mm -hmm. a difference. Yeah, yeah, that type of research would be fascinating. It could help people, but it's not done because of the sense of cheating. Mm -hmm. So interesting, interesting area. Yeah, I don't know if it's if it's a. Um I could see that with uh, with certain like performance enhancing drugs that sometimes are used by students now commonly in school and colleges and, and sometimes at the high school level. Mm -hmm. But uh, for things that are legal foods, mm -hmm. I'd be very interested. In yeah. That. yeah, well, yeah. there you know, there are you know, ADHD drugs that are are felt to improve performance, mm -hmm. but they're given because you have a diagnosis. But do you need to or have a be, diagnosis to improve performance? Right. They are given for diagnosis or illicitly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So I'm mm -hmm. sure you have a lot of those discussions with your professional athletes. Obviously, it's all confidential. You don't have to disclose that, nor would I recommend that you do. <laughs> but um, uh, that is, depending on how you look at it, you can make the argument that some of these things should be subjected to the rules of clinical research. And if there is a nutrient or a supplement that enhances performance and it doesn't have downside risk, why not? For sure. I, I agree. Especially now you see so many things that are advertised on television that claim to do so many things. Right, right. I that are unproven. Like, yeah. Let's, let's see the proof. Okay. And it's, you know, I'd love to uh, have more clinical research and, um, and I would like that to direct me and my diet to improve my performance. <laughs> well, with that in mind, we're going to do a little experiment between the two of us in our next session. Okay. And uh, we're going to reproduce a very, very <laughs> famous experiment called the Lady Tasting Tea Experiment. Okay. And we're going to call it the Ortho Sipping Scotch Experiment. Ortho. Ortho and cardiologist. There you go. Okay. Well, you're going to be the actual test subject, okay. and I'm going to be the researcher in this particular case. <laughs> okay. Thanks for joining the MedEvidence Podcast. To learn more, head over to medevidence.com or subscribe.